to have the word of God opened by our pastor of student ministries, James Barbalitos. James. Thanks, Dave. Uh, yeah, thanks for clapping. No, you don't need to clap. Well, thank you, Pastor Gama. It was a, it's wonderful to hear an update from your ministry and how the, the Lord continues to work uh, in His kingdom, to build His kingdom, to uh, add people to glorify Himself day by day, even here and in Mexico and all parts of the world. Well, it's uh, wonderful to, to bring God's Word to you this morning. It's been a couple months since I've been up here. Uh, Pastor Joe has graciously allowed me to have a, a number of weeks uh, break so that I can kind of get the bearings down of, of what it means to be a dad. And so I, uh, I uh, just want to, you know, while I have the chance, just, uh, just thank uh, just the people at the church for uh, just showing us the love of Christ, for uh, just so graciously bringing us meals and for praying for us and for uh, giving us clothing for the baby and for helpful, tin- for, for helpful hints. Uh, there's so many things that I, I have not even thought of and they make sure you check this and uh, I've had to take a swaddling 101 class. So, uh, but I'm getting better. So thank you so much. We sure appreciate uh, your uh, support and your prayers and we look forward to growing together as a family with you. Well, as we turn to God's Word this morning, we'll be continuing our, our study as we do when I preach through uh, the book of Second Peter. Uh, we've been blessed to, to see uh, Peter's instruction uh, through us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, so that we might uh, grow in our faith and that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. But as some of you know, uh, last this, this past Rome, uh, my, my, this past February, my family and I were uh, blessed to be able to take a trip to Rome. Uh, we had a, my my mother and my wife had a long weekend from uh, their work, and so we were able to to go to Rome for a few days, and it was a great time. You know, Rome one of the is one of the best cities in the world if you love art. And you love culture and history. I mean, you can't help go one block at a time. You, you see some sort of ruins or um, some sort of uh, statues that were made in, in uh, the ancient Rome, Roman Empire, antiquity. Um, and, and you see art uh, from the Renaissance masters, from people like Michelangelo and uh, Bernini and Raphael and some of the other Ninja Turtles. And it is great. Um, and the best place to go that we found uh, is the Vatican Museum. And this Vatican Museum is huge. It's, you know, the kind of the, the premier museum in the area. And it is filled with works of art uh, throughout history. Uh, it's, it's there that the, a lot of the Renaissance painters and, and their sculptures are there. Uh, and it's also home to the, the famous Sistine Chapel. You may have seen that in books and TV, on TV. And, and, and it's just a wonderful place. And as a matter of fact, it can almost be uh, overwhelming. Uh, even, even for uh, ardent history lovers, I was a history major, I love history. Or some people love art. But the place can almost be overwhelming because you walk in and room after room, corridor after corridor, is just filled with these paintings. And you walk around, you see these sculptors and you just when you first walk in you're you're in awe of these things you know you go in i remember after we finally got through um looking at the model of the place uh, we were able to go into some of the rooms and the first man you walk in in the first room you're just like wow look at these paintings and you you stand and you look at this first painting probably painted in the 15th or 16th century and the colors are just brilliant and you you're you're in awe of the imagination and the and the symbolism of the of the artist 
Um, and so you kind of take it in, you look at all the detail, and then you take a, a couple of other steps, and there's another one just like it, and you go through the whole process again, and you're like, wow, you know, this is, this is beautiful. You know, hey, did you guys see this? Get a, get a look at this. You know, get a picture of this. Um, but if you're like me, even though I, I'm, I feel like I'm semi-cultured, I'm, you know, I appreciate the arts, but after about two hours of walking in room after room and quarter after quarter, the, the, you start to kind of lose the amazement, you know, that the Oz is not quite the same. You, you stop looking at one, you know, piece of art at a time, and you kind of start to move into entire walls of art at a time. Like, oh, wow, these are good too. And after a while, you, you move through corridor and you see different sculptors until, after time, you... you you know, if you're like me, I remember specifically the room I was in where I walked in. I'm like, yeah, oh, wow, here again. Another room full of Renaissance work. And uh, does anybody else want to eat pizza? You know, like, it, 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 you know, the, the work is beautiful. But after a time of, of getting used to seeing so much of it, you know, it's easy to stop paying attention to the detail and, and just start to assume that, uh, well, this art is in the museum, therefore it must be good. And yeah, this is all pretty good. And, and so you start to, to miss out on some of the details and, and paying attention to the, the ones that are, are better as opposed to ones that might have some blemishes and stuff but that are still in the museum. And something similar happened to this I was reading uh, in the, the Brooklyn Art Museum. And in 2008, the New York Sun reported that, um, well, the New York Sun reported a, a press release from the Brooklyn Art Museum saying that they finally revealed that over one third of their Coptic art was fake. It was frauds. And that they had it, they had accumulated over the year. And, and what they had thought was made between the 5th and 7th century was actually made sometime in the early to mid 20th century. But so much of it looked so similar to the others, and at first glance it looked authentic, that they just assumed that it was the real deal, and so they brought it in and had it in their museum. And so instead of uh, trying to be too embarrassed, they just uh, were open with it, announced it, but then they still put it all on exhibit anyway, and said, well, this is the real stuff and this is the fake stuff, and you can see how close they were. And I thought that, you know, although this is humorous, unfortunately, this is the same kind of mindset that many churches have, that many churches have and many Christians have today. And although it might be a little embarrassing for a museum to have this mindset, it can be devastating for the church to have uh, the mindset. And what do I mean? Well, it's that people often assume, because you know, in our culture, especially we are inundated with preachers and teachers and, and different churches. You, you can't but go down the road and you always see some sort of church on a corner. Um, you turn on the TV and you see uh, TV program after TV program. You flip on the radio and there's... Um, many Christian stations where you can listen to. If you go online, there's blog sites and downloading sites and church websites. So much so that we as a culture, especially those who are interested in spiritual things, are inundated with, with teachers and preachers. And so because of that, oftentimes it's easy just to assume, well, these people, they're on TV. Well, these people are on the radio. They must be legit. And we stop paying attention to the details of what's important. And if we're not careful, uh, it's easy for us to maybe allow uh, frauds to shepherd and teach us. And this is what Peter's concern was for the early church. He was concerned that, the, that, that false teachers would come, and they would not come openly. They wouldn't be wearing We Are False Teacher t-shirts. They would come in secretly and enter the church. And unbeknownst to many of the people, they would start following these frauds who were leading them astray. Because the thing is, you know, we can test paintings, we can test sculptures, but people sometimes are, are more difficult to test than, than paintings. And Peter understands this. And so, as we've been studying through the, the book of Second Peter, uh, he's told us that the fact that the, 
the false teachers are going to come into the church and he's told us what they're going to do, but to help us recognize them, to help us to be able to distinguish them, the, the authentic teachers from the false teachers, uh, as we continue in our passage this morning, uh, Peter's going to give us a description of, of what these false teachers are like. He's going to give us a portrait of false teachers so that when we see them, when we see the way they act, when we see their attitudes and heart, we'll be able to recognize them right away so that we won't follow them and so that we won't do the same things that they do. So if you haven't done so already, I encourage you to open up to Second Peter chapter 2. And just by way of review, uh, as, we've, as we've been going through this book, the first chapter uh, of, of this book, uh, Peter has wrote to the church and instructed them on what it means to be people of godly character. That God has supplied everything we need for life and godliness through His Word. And that those who obey His Word will exhibit some sort of Christian qualities. And He lists them. There's a long list of them. And He encourages the people of the church to walk in this way. And in the beginning of the second chapter, He brings a warning to them and warns them that false teachers are going to come. He warns them that these false teachers are going to impact the spiritual lives of many They're going to lead many people astray, and even today they continue to do the same. And after warning them, he gives them hope and says, But God is not mocked. God sees what's going on, and there will come a day when God will bring these teachers to light and will judge them. It may not be in your day, it may not be in in the next generation's day, but sooner or later he's going to bring them to judgment. And and to, to affirm this truth, he goes through and gives some examples from the Old Testament on how God brought uh, the wicked and the false to judgment. And he gave three. He, he, he reminded them how God judged uh, the fallen angels. He reminded them on how God judged the ancient world in the days of Noah. And then he reminded them on how God judged the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he gave the church hope and he said, you need to defend yourself from these false teachers, but don't worry, they're not going to overcome you. You need to guard your hearts and be careful, but they they will not prevail over the church. We know that in the end, we will have the victory. And he said this not so that we as a church can just kind of relax and say, oh, you know, um, we don't have to worry because we win the game in the end. He just said that so that we might have hope, but he still wanted, uh, he still warned the church to be encouraged to stand strong and be, be ready to, to fight against them and to not follow them. But oftentimes in the battle, when you're battling them and you're fighting false teaching and you're not sure what to believe, uh, Peter's words of encouragement are, are very important. They give us hope, knowing that we are not going to be overcome as a church uh, by evil, but we'll be overcome in good, by good, by God um, saving us. And so after describing the the coming judgment of the false teachers, Peter then turns in and describes what these false teachers are like so that we'll know what to look for. And so we'll pick up our passage in 2 Peter 2, beginning in verse 10. And speaking of of their judgment, he says that the the Lord knows how to keep the wicked in judgment. And then verse 10 he says, and, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion... And despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. 
Suffering wrong is a wage for the wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice and steady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. So here, through this passage, Peter begins and he talks about the judgment that the false teachers would receive. And then he starts to paint a portrait on the type of things that they do. This is how you'll be able to recognize them. And so from this passage, I'm going to give you three marks of a false teacher so that you will recognize them and be careful not to follow in their ways. Three marks of a false teacher so that you'll be able to recognize them and be careful not to follow in their ways. And admittedly, this morning we'll only get to the first mark. As I was studying through the passage, I kept... Uh, seeing more and more things and and so uh, we will get to the first mark this morning and then the next two the next time. And the first thing that the Apostle Peter reveals is that false teachers, false believers who seek uh, to be in the church, they are driven by arrogance and self-glorification. The first mark of a false teacher is that they are driven by arrogance and self-glorification. After reminding the church that, that God, will save the God, God will save the godly from destruction, he tells them he's going to destroy the false teachers. And then he says he's going to destroy the false teachers. And then beginning in verse 10, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. And we know that the the false teachers are driven by arrogance and self-glorification by just observing two of the descriptions that Peter makes in chapter 10. And the first one is this, is that false teachers despise authority. False teachers despise authority. There are various forms of authority that we as humans interact with. And this has always been God's plan. He, 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 God, the Bible says that our God is a God of order. And so, even from the beginning of a creation, He has he is set up creation in a way that, that there's people who have authority, and then there's people who have lesser authority, and there's, there's people who don't have any authority, and there's, there's an element of submission so that things are in a working order. Right? Even from the beginning, God created man and called him to submit to God's authority. Indeed, uh, God gave man stewardship over the earth, and so we're supposed to take care of the earth. And, and in a sense, the earth obeys our, authorities, uh, our authority. Uh, we, plant, we plant seeds, and hopefully the, the seeds yield fruit. I mean, we're in control of those things. But uh, typically, there's kind of three forms of authority that we kind of recognize as a society. And the first one is, is civil authority. Right, and, and the type of civil authority is like uh, the government authority, uh, your, your, your local police or um, government officials or maybe the military. Or even maybe, I suppose, your boss at work might kind of fall into this category. That's a kind of a civil authority. And then there's a kind of authority within the family. Right? God has called uh, uh, his, his followers to submit to His authority in the family. But in the same way, God has called wives to submit to the authority of their husband and children to submit to the authority of their parents. This is all in working a part of, of God's plan for creation. 
And so you have civil, kind of civil authority, you have authority within the family, and then you have uh, spiritual authority, that is, authority within the church. God has called uh, those within His church to submit to His authority as God, to submit to the authority of the church leaders and the church elders, and also to submit to His authority, the, the authority of His Son, Christ. Christ is our ultimate authority, and we are to submit to Him and His Word. Not submitting to elders and, and church leaders goes against the very fabric of how God has set up His church. And not submitting to Christ, that, that, if you're not submitting to Christ and the authority of His Word, well then you're, you're not even saved. You can't be saved. And it's this type of indictment that, that Peter is referring to. He's not, he's, not speaking of, uh, he's not speaking of civil or even maybe family authority, these false teachers. He's not saying that, that these false teachers are anarchists or something like that. You know, in fact, oftentimes these false teachers appear as if they are the most law-abiding citizens in the community. They love to appear godly. They love to appear godly. But here what Peter is talking about is, is submission and they, they despise spiritual authority. And to help indicate this, we know because Peter, his word for authority here is kiriotitos. There's a long Greek word for you. And, it, and it's not the typical word that the, that the New Testament uses for authority. This more can be translated lordship. Right? They despise lordship. And usually when this term is used, it's, it's used to mean some sort of spiritual authority. So Peter says that they despise spiritual authority. Yeah, sure, they'll obey the police. Yeah, sure, they'll, they'll, they'll appear good when it comes to society and they'll, they'll, they'll have the appearance of piety. But when it comes, the, the thought of, of somebody else having spiritual authority over them, the, the thought of, of submitting to somebody else and that, the, that their word is not the final word is abhorrent to them. They utterly reject that. The thought of literally denying themselves and submitting to Christ and the restrictive commands of Scripture, that's totally unacceptable. And that's what Peter's referring to. And we know this because in the beginning of chapter 2 and verse 1, in speaking about the false prophets coming, the middle of, of, of verse 1, he says, they'll bring secret heresies, even denying the master who bought them. Well, who is this master who bought them? Well, it's Christ. So Peter is saying they're going to claim to be Christians. They're going to claim that Christ is their Lord, but they despise His authority. They don't follow after what He says. Peter is describing these kind of people so that, so that you will recognize them and not follow after them. And also, uh, be warned not to be like them. Be warned not to be like them. They might be active in church. They might show up every day to, to help tear down or, or clean up. They may want to teach Bible study. But those who despise spiritual authority cannot, um, cannot have given their life to Christ. If Christ is your master, then you need to, add, to act in a certain way. You cannot despise His authority. You know, and, and even on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus recognizes this. Jesus recognizes this from, from some people. And so He's on the Mount, and He's speaking to a big crowd of His followers. Some are true, some are not. And he openly says to him, Why do you say to me, Lord, Lord, but then don't do what I say? There's an obvious contradiction there. How, how, can, you, how can you call me Lord, but then if I'm your Lord, I, I should tell you to do something, you do it. Why then don't you do it? 
If that's the case, then really I'm not your master, I'm not your Lord. And your works make this clear. Now, some people might say, well, okay, Pastor James, I understand this, this makes sense. But, I mean, wouldn't somebody like this be pretty obvious to see? I mean, if somebody was, you know, you don't often have preachers or teachers who just walk in and then blatantly despise church authority and blatantly despise the Word of God. I mean, that'd be kind of easy. Then who would follow them? Well, you're right. Right? They don't necessarily do it openly. I mean, some do, and they're pretty obvious, I suppose. But oftentimes, this is done behind the scenes in subtle ways that you don't even notice. And that's why it's so important that you be on your guard and pay attention to this. Oftentimes, when they do this, they're actually, they have the very appearance as if they're serving God and being obedient to them and, and helping you. And you might have even experienced this. You know, sometimes you might have been struggling through something, trying to make a decision, not really sure what God wants you to do, or maybe there's a borderline sin issue, and maybe somebody like this will say, hey, you know what? God loves you. And He, he just wants you to be happy. You know, don't worry so much. You know what? I know you might need some extra money. Hey, you know, I mean, if you fudge a little bit on your taxes, that's no big deal. You'll get some extra money, and God just wants you to be happy. Or, you know, God, you know, God's, God loves you no matter what you'll do. You know, and, and if, if it pleases you to maybe move in with your, your boyfriend or girlfriend, or, or if you've had an unbiblical divorce, go ahead, and, go ahead and get remarried. God doesn't want you to be alone. You see, they despise the authority of Scripture, which is our guide. And they kind of, uh, they arrogantly act as if, as if they know better than God. This is, this is the, the, the epitome of arrogance. As if they know better. As if, although God says one thing, hey, God doesn't, God doesn't really mean that. That authority thing, you know, God's love, He doesn't care. And I think that if you think about actions like this, you'll notice that you see uh, people despising authority all of the time. And you need to be careful. Now, if somehow the Lord gave me the window into what all you're thinking, I wonder if I might say, well, wait, I think I've told somebody that before. Have I, have I given some counsel like that before? Well, if you have, stop it. Repent and stop it. And submit to the authority of God's Word. God knows best, and He knows. Now, if you've given something like that, uh, uh, counsel like that to somebody, does that make you a false teacher? Well, no, not necessarily. But what it does do is, is confuse and make it harder for other people to recognize true from false. You see, Peter is reminding us that as, as we subject to the authority of, of God's Word and of, of the leaders in the church, we are making the distinction between true and false easier for us. But the more that you lack in following after God's Word and submitting to the authority of Christ in your own life, the harder you make it for us as Christians, as individual Christians, to distinguish the true from the false. So let this aspect of false teachers and, and false believers encourage you to all the more submit to Christ's authority and all the more live in a way that He has called you to live. After all, He is your Master. He is your Master. Despising authority is, is indicative of false teachers because it reveals who they really worship. When, you, when they despise authority, it reveals who they really worship and who they really worship is themselves. They worship themselves. The thought that their words aren't the most influential is despising. 
and they're driven by self-glorification. They love when people come to them for knowledge and they love to feel as if they are the ones that are, are imparting some sort of blessing on people. They love the pat on the back and the, wow, that person is so godly. Look at him. He knows so much about Scripture. And they love to promote their own, their self and their own spiritual authority. And this leads us to the second thing that we know that false teachers are driven by arrogance and self-glorification. The first is that they despise authority. And the second is that false, teacher, is that false teachers try to exert power and authority which they don't have. It's, it's, it's almost a comical hypocrisy. On the one hand, he say, well, on the one hand, Peter says they despise authority, and then on the other hand, they say, "Listen to us. We are the ones with spiritual authority." And we know this because Peter continues on, back to verse ten. He says, "Especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones." It's arrogance. And Peter reveals how these false teachers engage in spiritual warfare. They boldly and willfully, uh, they don't tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. And, and, and some of your translations might say angelic majesties, and some of your uh, uh, translations might say something like celestial beings. But what Peter is referring to is fallen angels or demons. Peter says, bold and willfully, they slander and blaspheme demons. They don't tremble at it. And some of you might think it's strange that he refers to them as as glorious ones or angelic majesties, but it's not too unreasonable. Because if you think about it, uh, even if they are fallen beings, they are still uh, spiritual beings. They have much more power than we do. They've existed a lot longer than we do. In a sense, anything in the in, in the spiritual realm could be considered glorious to a certain an aspect. In fact, uh, you know, all the fallen angels at one point in time were in the presence of God before they fell, and so. Peter using this term is not unreasonable. And Peter says these false teachers who are full of themselves go around slandering demons as if they have some sort of authority over them. And people still do this all the time. You laugh until you turn on uh, the television. You know, I had a curiosity uh, earlier this week. I went on to the TBN, uh, like, uh, what's going to be on this week schedule. And they, they kind of hide it in a lot of ways, but a lot of it has to do with uh, the uh, spiritual power of prophecy and, and finding the insights of God. Or, uh, you know, Benny Hinn casts 13 devils out of some missionaries in Nigeria and, and stuff. And you see people casting out demons and, and, and calling and, and binding city blocks of demons and going on spiritual walks as if they're exerting some sort of personal power over these, these spiritual beings. Sometimes you'll see these spiritual revival meetings where people come from all over the country to, to have demons cast out or special healings. And, and all these false teachers are doing is they're exerting some sort of spiritual authority. They're getting people to think that they are, they even call themselves apostles. And they're acting as if they have spiritual authority when really they don't have anything. They are driven by arrogance and they are driven to glorify themselves. And that's, how, that's one of the first marks of a false teacher. Their life is completely hypocritical. They hate people having spiritual authority over them and they reject it. But yet they say, well, we have spiritual authority. 
And Peter says they shouldn't be doing this. They should be actually trembling at the thought of interacting with demons. He says, bold and willfully, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. And that's, to say that, that's not to say that we as Christians should be afraid of demons. They have no power over us. But the idea that you have some sort of spiritual authority over things that you know nothing about is foolish. And that word for bold in verse 10, uh, it's not a, or, or some versions say daring, it's not a courageous or, it's not a word denoting courage or being courageous or brave. It, it, it more denotes this idea of, of, of foolishness or kind of reckless abandonment. You know, it, it kind of seems brave, but it's really like foolish. You know, I kind of think of it as kind of like when you go to, the, I don't know if you've ever been to the circus. I've been to the circus a couple of times. And you see those guys who like stick their heads in the mouths of lions. Or those guys who like wrestle, you know, crocodiles, the crocodile hunter, like in these big alligators twice their size or crocodiles. I mean, you usually don't think, wow, those guys are brave. You think, man, that guy's nuts. Do it again. <laughs> You know, you, you, there, there's not a sense of nobleness about it. I mean, you don't look down on them, but that's the kind of the boldness that Peter is talking about here. Except, actually, these false teachers are, are more reckless than these lion tamers because, in a, in a way, at least the lion tamers have some sort of training or experience. But there's, there's no such training to slander or, or claim authority over demons. They don't have any. See, Peter says, they're doing this boldly and they should be afraid. And then he proceeds to say, and not even holy angels do this. Not even holy angels do this. And he, and he continues on. He says, bold and willfully, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Verse 11, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Peter says, even angels who are mightier than humans, who are equally as mighty than, than the demons and have God on their side, so they're more powerful, even, even holy angels who might even have more reason to slander demons, do not do so. And if anybody was going to do it, if that's what God wanted from his, from, from his followers, then the angels would be doing it, but they don't. And why don't angels do it? Is it because they're afraid of the demons? Of course not. It's because that's not their place. That's not what they've been called to do. Angels have been called to serve the Lord in His presence and to do everything to exalt and glorify God's name and the name of His Son. You're not going to see an angel slandering a demon, you know, exhibiting his power and glorifying on how powerful he is. In the book of Jude, uh, he, the book, Jude gives us a little glimpse on when Michael was interacting with uh, Satan over the, the dead body of Moses. And Jude says that, that Michael dared not slander the devil, but just simply said, The Lord rebuke you. Michael, the archangel, dared not slander the devil. Was he scared of him? No. But what his goal was, was that in anything and everything, he was going to give God the glory and depend upon God so that in victory, God might be magnified. And it's the same thing with us as a church. This is not how God has commanded you to engage in spiritual warfare. We were never told to go on the attack and cast out demons and slander them. What does the Bible say about how we're, we're to engage in spiritual warfare? 
A, qu- a couple quick thoughts in James 4. James 4, 7 says, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Paul writes in Ephesians 6 to take up the shield of faith so you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. When it comes to spiritual warfare, Scripture says your mission is clear. Stand strong. You resist the devil, and then when you feel the fiery darts, you take up the shield of faith, and you just stand there and take it. It's not your place to go win the battle, because the battle's already been won through Christ. Your job is to grow in your faith, to grow in your trust in God's Word, and to stand strong. And on your confession of Christ, the Lord says in the Gospels that the the gates of Hades will not prevail against us. And when we do this, God gets the glory because He's the only one that should. And as we close, I don't think that um, I don't think that Peter here is simply just saying, um, you know, don't slander demons. I mean, that's not his main instruction here. I mean, that's probably a good principle to live by. But his main point is that that he's describing the heart of false teachers. He's saying, we know their heart. They're arrogant and they're driven by self-glorification. And we know this because they despise authority and they they go around slandering demons as if they themselves had authority. Beware of teachers who are arrogant and and exhibiting self-authority apart from the authority of God's Word and Christ. I think this would apply to anybody who claims to have some sort of secret knowledge or or, uh, knowledge outside of Scripture that we must need to be saved. You know, people, you know, Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, Charles Taze Russell, the founder of Jehovah Witnesses, they all, they all did the same thing. Oh, what you've believed in the past is wrong. Now I have the special authority. Now I have more info. Follow me and my authority. That should be a clear indicator to us as a church that they're false. Because God's already given us everything we need. His word is clear. And so if you don't follow that, that means you're not trusting in the authority of God's word. They're driven by arrogance and self-worship. What's the state of your heart, church? Where are you at? Do you love the authority of Christ? Does He rule over you? Will the world be able to distinguish your life from that of the false teachers? Well, as we seek to grow in Him, we, over the next time we, we look through Second Peter, we'll look at a, a couple of other uh, important parts of the portrait of false teachers. Because it doesn't, it doesn't just stop at their arrogance and self-glorification. It's manifested in, in everything else they do. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you, Father, for this morning. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your word which guides us, which is a light into our path. Lord, I pray that we would be people who would seek after you, would follow your authority, would not be like the world would not seek to glorify ourselves, Lord, but would would seek to glory only in You. Lord, for while we were yet sinners, You you died for us. You paid the penalty of our sin. And we we can only glory in Your matchless name. Father, I pray that You would protect us from false teachers and false teaching. Protect us from following after them, Lord. That we might be a light to those who do not know You. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.